Good morning and Merry Christmas. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Christmas program today, 3 o'clock. Um, Swartz Creek will not be here this year, so it's uh, our choir along with some specials. And as is our tradition following that program, we'll have our refreshment time downstairs. If you haven't um, got that together, time to get started. No prayer meeting on Wednesday. Andrea's number again. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. I, I, I'm on counting this month, and I think we're like right at even. Is it say? Yeah. 364. So, amen. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. So, um, and thank you for Adam Tam. You're all comfortably warm this morning. So he got, got the furnaces going again. So um, I have another note here. It's a thank you. Let's see, it's a similar, I think, to the text, but Dear Thornville Baptist Family, Kathy and I are overwhelmed by your show of love and support. The grace you've shown to us has caused us to praise our Heavenly Father. The kindness you've demonstrated is a loud testimony to the work of grace in you. We thank God for his presence in you. May you, as individuals, as families, and as a church family, have a wonderful celebration of the birth of our Savior. We pray that you will experience the smile of our God with love and appreciation, Dean. And, and that, is, that is in Dean's handwriting. So. All right. So if I missed anything else, it's all about the program later today. So, Our scripture for meditation is found in Acts, the third chapter. Read 17 through 26.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Phil, can I ask you this morning? Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 186, 186 in the brown.
Christmas? Sweet. Andrew, you're up. 137 in the brown. 137. And why this one? Because you like it and it's a Christmas song. I love this one too. This is one of my favorites. Can we do the red version of it? Um, Maestro doesn't like that version. I think it's because they repeat the chorus. They don't change the chorus's words like they should. Is that right? Yeah, that's why. So in the red is 213 in the red. The, the brown hymnal, 213, 213. The brown hymnal likes to, to change words, and they like to take Christ's blood out of the words a lot. So if there's 
this is usually a better version if they have it. So two, one, three in the red. Same song, mostly the same words. Scripture reading this morning is 1 Timothy. We'll be reading in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. That's 1846 in the Pew Bible. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given 
in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. May God bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal once again and turn to 145, 145 in the brown. Our scripture text this morning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2.
Our last study took a look at Christ as the Savior for all time and for all people groups. We learned that since the beginning of time, Jesus, God's Son, was ordained by God the Father to be the servant of sinners despite the alternatives invented by the religious peoples of the world. There's only one God and there's only one Savior. Salvation is not to be found in anyone else or in any other religion. You say, well, that's a pretty absolute statement. Yeah, well, I'm taking it from the claims of Christ himself. That he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Any sinner, we learn, can be saved by God, but they must come. They must come to the God of the Bible. We learn that you cannot use the decrees of election and predestination against God. You cannot say, I am not saved because God has not elected me to salvation. All men have the responsibility to expose themselves to the preaching of the gospel, to pray, to seek to know the truth of God. And in third world countries where the gospel is not readily found, it's our job, we who know the gospel and know Christ, that's why we're involved in missions. To get the word out to people that don't know, that haven't heard. And that's incumbent upon us as a Christian group to do that. Thirdly, we learn that Jesus is the door through which people must enter to reach God. Any other religion, any other method, any other work, Jesus says, well, if you come any other way, you're a thief and a robber who is attempting illegal breaking and entering, which nets them judgment, not salvation. We say, wow, that's a pretty exclusive claim. Yeah, it is. Because there's only one Savior. <laughs> and fourthly, we learn that those who come to God through Christ must leave. They must leave everything else behind. Be it money or family or friends, God must be first and foremost the first love of your life. And then we close by talking about the capability of Jesus to save. His death paid the debt of sin for all who repent and believe. And his resurrection assures us victory over the last enemy, which is death. Now today's study asks the question, can people be saved who know nothing about the gospel? Or to ask it another way, what knowledge is essential for a person to be saved? What must people know to be saved? So I ask that question, we come today's message and let's pray for God's enablement. Holy Father, we thank you for the word of God. <clears throat> We've asked some questions this morning, but we don't have to guess at the answers. 
Thankfully, the answers are given in your word. Lots of people don't want to hear your answers, but that's part of the rebellion of our hearts. We want to hear the truth this morning. We want to hear a word from you. And you said in your high priestly prayer, Father, thy word is truth. That being the case, we can trust what we find in your written word. So we pray that you will be with us and enable us, teach us, save us, encourage us, build us up in the faith. Save whom you will this day for your glory and our good. We pray. Amen. In our text, 1 Timothy 2, Paul encourages us to pray for all men. Look at verses 3 and following. This is good, he says, and pleases our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. It's quite a statement that Paul makes here. God wants all men to be saved. Okay, so I ask this question. Are all men saved? If you were a universalist who believed in heaven but no hell, you would answer yes. All men are saved or they will be saved. That's what the universalists teach. But such a conclusion flies in the face of reality and in the face of the scriptures as well. Which talk not only about people being saved and entering into heaven's bliss but also of people who are lost and entering into hell's torments. Only the most spiritually blind would assert that all people will be saved. Such of you make salvation a joke and the atoning work of Jesus a farce. If the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the Stalins are just as saved as the Martin Luthers, the John Knoxes, and the Dr. Lloyd-Jones of our history, then repentance and faith in Jesus are not necessary, and the required holiness of God is a heretical teaching. If all men are saved, what fear is there of judgment or punishment for sin? Why even have a Savior who came and died? Think about it. Was Jesus shed blood a necessity or was it irrelevant? Let's not get trapped, I would use the word deceived, by our own wishful thinking. Any talk of salvation must begin and end with God's revelation of the subject found as it is in the Bible. You know, God is not silent. Though men are willfully deaf. <laughs> Think of all the declarative statements in the Bible that make God a liar if all are saved. 
Let me read some of them for you. Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, writing to the Romans, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. Oh, did I read that right? Wrath? Is that what he said? Judgment? Well, these have no place in a world where all are saved. Do they? What about the writer of Hebrews? He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 27. Think about this. If all are saved, then God has no enemies. There's no judgment. There's no raging fire to fear if all are saved. Or again, Jesus in Luke 13. There will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. Luke 13, verse 28. Now, according to the universalists, none are thrown out. All are in the kingdom of God. What Bible are they reading? Obviously, to be a universalist, you would have to bury your head in the sand. Set all reason aside and promote a sinfully absurd theory of salvation that opposes and denies the very God whose salvation is under discussion. The God of the universalist cannot be, cannot be, the God of the Bible. And the salvation of which they speak is but a delusion of their own imagination. Hooray for Satan, but not hooray for them. Satan has held people of this persuasion fast in his kingdom. Paul, speaking for the apostles, says, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. Nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2 and 5. Obviously, believers of the book and believers of reality must understand our text 
God wants all men to be saved in some other definition than just that of the universalist who's living in fantasy land. True, whatever God wants, God gets. In his own words, he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 10. That's our God. Job put it this way, though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who? has resisted his will and come out unscathed. And the implication is from Job's words, Job 9, verse 3 and 4, no one fights against God and wins. Even proud and self-assertive King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and compelled to testify of God. Here it is. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4 verse 35. Wow. So, If God wants all men to be saved, but we know that not everyone is saved, how do we explain this? Has God suddenly lost his power to save? Well, how ridiculous is that? The problem is not with God. The problem is with our understanding of what Paul is saying here. The context of any given passage of scripture must color the interpretation. Otherwise, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And that's what universalists have done. And it's a form of self-deception. Well, it says all, so it means all. Everyone's going to be saved. So I ask this question. Do we find any help in the context to discover what Paul meant by the word all. Look at verse 1. I urge then that requests and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone. King James Version says for all men. The Greek here is pas, P-A-S, means the whole of, or more than one. So we know that God is talking about God's people praying for a plurality of people. But the next phrase in the verse adds even more meaning to the word all. He says, for kings and all those in authority, that it may be that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 1 Timothy 2 verse 2. So now we have a charge that we're to pray for the in, pray for and intercede for all men, including specifically kings, but also all those in authority. 
we begin to understand that the word all, within context, does not mean every last person on earth, but rather every kind of person on earth, including but not restricted to those in authority. Now consider another text by Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Oh, so we're not to conclude that no person of wisdom or no person of Authority is a candidate for salvation. No, verse 26, brothers, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. That's true, not many. But some, some were saved. And so we're not to confine our prayers to only those we deem lowly and ill-informed. To do so would be to second-guess the decrees of God, which no one may do. So the all in the phrase, God wants all men to be saved, does not refer to every last person on the earth, but rather all kinds or classes of people. And this is precisely what we find in reality, isn't it? In the Revelation, John is at the end of the age, and he's describing what he saw. Let me read it for you. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live in the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Revelation 14, verse 6. And the result is given in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Paul, speaking of the church, says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Colossians 3, verse 11 and 12. The saved brethren, I put it this way, the saved consist of every kind of sinful person on the earth. None are exempt. None are excluded. All are within the grasp of God's saving grace. I could say it this way. All are savable from God's viewpoint. Never forget it. Never count yourself or other sinners 
out. We are to hope in God. The writer of Hebrews says he is willing and able to save completely those who come to God through Jesus. Hebrews 7 verse 25. So God wants all kinds of people to be saved. And therein we can take our hope. Secondly, it's the knowledge of the truth that saves. Verse 4. Not a truth, but the truth. In this definition, the truth is not a proposition. It's a person. It's not any one principle in the book or a compilation of many principles, but it's the author of the book. You can study all all the theology you want and end up in hell. You can be a Calvinist and perish. You can be very religious and still lost. Jesus made this exclusive claim. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes before the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the truth that saved. And short of him, short of him, your knowledge will kill you. Miss Christ, you miss life. In Jesus' prayer, the night of his crucifixion, here's what he prayed. Now this is eternal life. He's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17 verse 6. Wow. It sounds like this business of salvation is pretty focused. Starts out here and keeps moving in. Now now it's getting very personal. You mean there has to be a certain truth for people to be saved? They're not just going to be saved mm, out of the blue. They can't just go out in the forest and sit under a tree and pray and be saved. They have to know some things to be saved. Yeah. If they don't have to know some things to be saved, we're spending an awful lot of money and spending a lot of energy sending out missionaries to tell them of the truth that they need to know to be saved. Let's just let them do their thing. Now, what are some of the ways that this knowledge of truth saves? Well, number one, this truth saves from apathy and indifference to the spiritual. Remember your days before the knowledge of Christ came to you? You lived life solely for the material and for the carnal. So long as you had food on the table for your family and clothes on your back, you were content. If by effort or good fortune you stockpiled some money in the bank so that you could buy 
some of the niceties for your families, the desires of their heart. You consider the world to be treating you well. You had little time for religion and little time for the things of God. Those things were okay for others, oh, but not, not, not for you. You had better things to do with your time. You were not necessarily hostile to the gospel, but you just did not think it very important or practical. You had all you needed. Then somewhere or other through a gospel track or the witness of a friend or the sermon on a radio, you moved beyond your one little verse that you knew from the Bible. You know what that verse is. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, not perish, but have everlasting life. You loved that verse because it seemed to lay aside all your fears of death and hell. I know a number of unbelievers that love John 3.16. They do. Shall not perish. Have everlasting life. That's me. I'll take that. But then, then someone points out mm, verse 18. Same chapter. Same author. Just two verses later. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Suddenly, suddenly now, ooh, this, this God loving the world part of verse 16 no longer applies to you because verse 18 calls for a response to God's Son. Namely, faith in Him. And further, it warned that lack of such belief meant that you were already in a state of condemnation. People need to hear this in our day. Things are not as well as they think they are. They gloss over all of that before. They didn't give it a second thought that God would actually hold a person accountable for not believing in Jesus. That was never in their thoughts. But when the Spirit of God starts working, he presses this truth upon us and our indifference melts and suddenly we're afraid. Rightly so. Your tranquility turns to unrest. Literally, if you remember your life, you had trouble sleeping at night. You felt that you needed to get right with God, and Jesus was suddenly very, very, very important. Spiritual indifference began to flee with the total truth about Jesus beginning to flood the soul. <laughs> You've heard the expression, ignorance is bliss. 
Yeah, but when the truth starts displacing the ignorance, it can be very disconcerting. Ignorance might be bliss. Truth might be very upsetting. You see, the truth of the gospel saves from a false confidence. Picture now a person who, though giving little thought to the centrality of the truth that Jesus alone saves, was a person who did not ignore the subject of salvation altogether. This person believed all along that there is a, there is a spiritual destiny to which people are heading. He or she may have believed in both heaven and in hell. What is more, he or she knew that God was such that the sinful behavior of their own lives would not be tolerated by a holy God. And so they felt the need to reform. I've met many people like this. No one had to tell them this. They began to give up their most uh, wicked of sins as they saw them. Their drunkenness, their immorality, the pornography, the gambling and such began to turn over many leaves. And by the way, it's at this time of year that people do this. They're always thinking of the new year and new year's resolutions. Suddenly church and the people of God seem to be the place to be. After all, they, <laughs> they were good folk once, once you got to know them. Though no preacher actually taught it, such people believe that keeping the Ten Commandments was the way to salvation. Partaking of the communion elements of bread and wine was viewed as a little bit of added insurance. And then one day, the preacher accidentally... I use that in quotes, accidentally taught on Galatians 3, verse 11 and following, which says clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Or again, the preacher alluded to James 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking all of it. You mean I have to obey all of the Ten Commandments perfectly to be saved? You protest, that's ridiculous, no one's perfect. <laughs> well, no one is perfect. But just then, the gospel truth cuts through this defense, saying, Bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2, verse 10. And then verse 9 of chapter 5. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And these people, some of you, realize that your confidence was misplaced. You were trying to do better without thinking 
that you had to become perfect. But now you realize that the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7, verse 19. You had finally come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Ah. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, verse 23. And so the truth of Jesus as Savior saves from false confidences. It's not just trying to live a good life. It has to do with being perfect. I'm doomed if it's perfect that I have to be. Well, you need a stand-in that can fulfill this requirement. Thirdly, the gospel of Jesus saves from despair. Have you ever been so helpless in your own thinking as to feel hopeless? Did you get it now? Helpless and hopeless. They are twin sisters at times. The one supports the other. Hopelessness is the definition of despair. It's a man or a woman hanging at the end of his rope with a gaping precipice filled with demons and fire and hideous monsters below with mouths wide open waiting to grab you when you fall and consume you. This is the person who has tried and tried and tried again and again. They're tired of trying now. They're worn out from trying. They have traveled down every conceivable path and know only to find a bolted iron door at the end of the path barring entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. They were once very strong-willed and strong in resolve, but now they are feeble and weak. Nothing has worked. All has ended in despair. Might as well let go of the rope and fall into the pit. You can't do any more. I mean, even if someone would dangle a steel cable fastened to a winch and would shout, Hey, hey, take hold of the cable and I'll winch you to safety. You would not have the faith to believe it nor the strength to do it. You know in your heart that you need more than a helping hand. The gospel truth of a vicarious savior is preached. And when it is preached, you hear of a savior who does not ask. He does not ask for you to help him. He doesn't seek your help. He does not come to assist you, but to save you. He does not ask you to take hold of anything. 
Instead, he takes hold of you and effectually draws you out of the pit of despair. The fires of hell, the gaping mouth of the monsters below, are satisfied. No more, they are slain. Paul puts it this way. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them all triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, verse 13 and following. When you read that and here you learn that salvation is not what you have done. It is not what you could do, but what Christ has done for you. Think about it. You learn that God is not looking for your goodness but for your badness. He's not calling the righteous to him. He's calling the unrighteous to him. That his salvation is not for saints. It is for sinners. And hope begins to flood in. Hope begins to flood in because you know that your wicked heart is precisely the home, it is the home in which God desires to take up residence. Hallelujah. You see then that the gospel is indeed good news. It's good news. It's great news. It's there for you to believe but not for the doing. Faith is not self-energized. Faith in yourself. Ha! <laughs> no, not faith in self. That'd be left to the lie that you can do it on your own. Faith takes its hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. You did it, Lord. Not me. This is not a partnership. This is a sovereign act of God's grace. And that brings me then to my final point, the kind of knowledge that saves. What is the kind of knowledge that saves? Well, it's a convincing knowledge. There is a world of difference between what I will call book knowledge and saving knowledge. There are people who have a natural proclivity to study. There are. It doesn't matter the subject. If there is interest in it, they can read up on it, pretty well digest the main tenets. 
These bookworms are to be found in the spiritual realm as well. There are professors of religion in our most liberal and our most secular universities. Yes. They teach theology. They teach comparative religions. They can delineate the ins and the outs of most religions, including Christianity. You know, whenever the, uh, uh, whenever the History Channel does a documentary on some Bible theme, and they do these every once in a while, saw one on Noah's Flood. I saw another one on the Exodus. They read the Bible text, they give lip service to its validity, and then they pack the dialogue with theologians and scientists who spend the next hour presenting all the alleged proofs to discredit, let's say, a universal flood, if they're dealing with that subject. Do they have knowledge of the Noah flood? No. They weren't there. And they have no knowledge. They're not convinced of it. They don't believe it. And if you doubt something, you don't know it. But Christ must become to you more than an academic savior. You're called upon in the gospel to believe that salvation is accomplished by him alone and on your behalf. It isn't penance plus Christ equals payment for your sin. Really? I mean, does God need help to forgive and cleanse you? Secondly, saving knowledge is experiential knowledge. See, what do you mean by that? Let me illustrate. When Philip was called by Christ to become his disciple, Philip went to Nathanael. And he said, and Nathanael's his brother, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. John 1, verse 45 and verse 46. I want you to notice, Philip did not enter into some kind of dialogue with Nathaniel. He did not try to convince him of his findings. He knew how fruitless that would be. You know, brothers don't always get along together. He knew that Nathaniel had to be convinced for himself, and so he says, Well, just come and see. And the text says, When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you 
while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. John chapter 1, verse 47 and following. Philip knew enough about his brother to know it would take more than just his word to convince Nathaniel of Jesus' identity. So he says to him, well, come and see. I'm not going to twist your arm. But come and see for yourself. And that's my point that God and his salvation must be experienced for yourself. No one can believe for you. No one can convince you to forsake stubbornness and pride. No one can do those things. The appeal of the gospel is always, it is always, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm, 1, Psalm 34, verse 8. Until you taste for yourself, you will never know salvation when you taste and see for yourself. No one will be able to convince you otherwise. You will be convinced that Jesus is in fact the Savior. Your Savior. And then thirdly and lastly, saving knowledge is always and forever embedded in the truth of the gospel. Jesus spoke of the stranglehold of sin and the emancipation from such slavery. Let me read it for you. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. If you, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wonderful text, John 8, 31, 32. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed this prayer for his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. You know, that's really one of the characteristics of truth. That truth has a liberating effect. It, it does. Lies, deception, cover-ups... Minimizing evil, excusing evil, ignoring it has an enslaving effect. Aren't you tired of the lies? I, I, I can only watch so much news and then I get discouraged. I mean, haven't you had enough of the dark secrets that haunt your soul and keep you awake at night? I'm always wondering, am I getting the whole truth and nothing but the truth when I'm listening to the news as it's being pontificated by uh, 
unscrupulous men and women. Paul put it this way, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Colossians 2 verse 8. Satan and his world agree that the best way to handle sin is not to discuss it. Certainly no, don't admit it. No matter if it's true, the fewer who know about it, the better. Binding lies and hurting lies are deadly lies. They'll kill you. Biblical answer is this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul put it this way, as he wrote to the Galatians, he says to them, you were running a good race. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Wow. That kind of persuasion, I'm still reading scripture, that kind of persuasion does not come from God. The God who calls you. Galatians 5, verse 7 and 8. Saving knowledge. Saving knowledge adheres tenaciously to gospel truth. Anybody can pontificate religion. Every, anyone can be wowed with the expertise of Somebody that's good at reading people and telling them the things they want to hear. But it's the truth that's liberating. And sometimes, well, most times, truth is very unnerving. It's like a scalpel. It gets in there and it, it cuts away our misconceptions. It challenges the lies and the deception. And it says, clear out the cobwebs and listen to the truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. He's not a liar like men. He declares it. So he cannot lie. The actual scripture says, God cannot lie. Did you ever think of that? And that means that men can lie. And they can distort the truth. And they do. But if you'll listen to the gospel, you'll be saved and you'll be encouraged and strengthened. And that's what we need to tell our friends and neighbors and our children. Expose them to the truth of God's word. Heavenly Father, thou art the truth. The living truth is found in Jesus and no other. I pray that you will bless us with a 
hunger for the truth. Please protect us. Put a shield up around us, Lord, and protect us from the lies of the evil one, his misconceptions, the deceit that's found there, the twisting, the abrogation of truth, the things that he dangles in front of us that look more appealing than the truth. Lord, deliver us. Exalt yourself. Exalt your son, the living truth. We may trust God not to lie to us ever. We may trust God to always be a proclaimer of truth. Where do we find his word? We find it in the scriptures. You preserve this book. You preserve the words of the authors so that they did not write down their own opinions, but they wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. We bless thee for that. The world would know nothing of the truth of God. We had not the Holy Spirit working through the various means of the gospel. Thank you for our time together. At this time of the year, in particular, we're concentrating on the singular truth of God coming among us, Emmanuel, God with us. But there's so much else that needs to be considered and thought through. Give us that ability, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal, number 295. Two nine five. stand as we see. It's okay, we'll wait. To the different tune? No, no, he was in the wrong. He was in the wrong. 295 in the red.
God's people said. Amen. Amen. What a great hymn. What a great hymn. Okay, just a reminder that at 3 o'clock, we have our Christmas program here at the church. So I hope to see you back for that. The choir has some special numbers. We've got solos, duets. I don't know, we have any trios? Yeah? Okay, wow. Should be a wonderful time praising the Lord. And then afterwards there's um, refreshments and so on, if you bring them. <laughs> if you don't bring anything, the eating will be sparse. <laughs> but we're feeding on the wonderful music of the Christmas season and uh, the glory of the gospel. So I hope to see you back at three. We are dismissed. We've been doing this so long, I don't guess it's a surprise anymore. <laughs> this is our token uh, Christmas gift for our pastor, and I just wanted to say again that, you know, how much we appreciate you, and uh, we all know that you're, you're not feeling that good, and, and it's, a, it's a push, and we, we appreciate it. Those of us who have been uh, sick and laid aside uh, can appreciate uh, what you do for us, and um, we would, I would, I would ask the congregation to try and remember to uh, keep our pastor in prayer and yeah, um, a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of things to learn and things going on in your life. So we appreciate um, your um, commitment, not not only to just you know to the Thornville group, but your commitment to Christ and it shows through in, in all that you do. So. Thank you very much. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. We can go. Thank you, folks. See you back here at 3.